to come back, so we're not going to, the story continues, we are going to come back, I'm not going to leave you hanging, um, but you can think of it like, you know, TV shows that, you know, season finale that leave you with a cliffhanger that you're eagerly awaiting the conclusion. Uh, but my hope is that today we'll get through chapter 14, so um, next year after a, a review that then we can uh, pick up with the seven angels with the seven plagues and the seven bowls of God's wrath uh, and all that fun stuff. Um, but first let me just, uh, before we take a look at uh, the latter part of chapter 14, uh, let me just sort of remind us where we are. So we've been, in, since chapter 12, in the middle of this sort of series of visions. Um, you, some people count seven of them, a uh, series of seven signs in heaven that John sees, and that's usually how you can mark, the, they're not enumerated, but you can mark seven times that John has this phrase, I looked or I saw. Um, chapter 14 we talked about last week sort of forms a pivot in this series. The focus uh, starting off was on this uh, broad view of Christ's appearance on earth back in chapter 12 uh, and the cosmological impact of his coming into his heavenly reign. Um, which involved the great dragon who accuses uh, humanity and deceives the earth, being cast out of heaven and thrown down to the earth. Uh, thenceforth he unleashes his great wrath and seeks to destroy the church, for he knows that his time is short. And to accomplish this attack on the church, we saw in the past couple weeks, his use of two beasts. Uh, the first beast we saw mimicked Christ. All those characters, characteristics, slain yet living, exercising authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, uh, receiving universal worship. But his persecution of church and blasphemy distinguished his short reign. The second beast uh, supports the worship and rule of the first beast, sort of like the apostles. It exercises the authority of the first beast, even performing miracles, and it's deceptive witness to the first beast. And those who worship that beast by predilection or deception receive his name and number upon him. Uh, last week we focused on this contrasting portrait of God's first fruit. So you have this picture of those marked by the beast, and then last week we saw this picture of those who are marked uh, with the Father and Son's name, singing a new song of God's victory and found to be blameless. And today, as we close out chapter 14, we're going to be focusing on the ultimate downfall of those participating in the worship of this unholy trinity of the dragon and two beasts, uh, people who will drink the cup of God's wrath and um, be part of this uh, reaping of God's judgment. So um, let me start uh, in chapter 14. I'll start in verse 6 because um, uh, we have a series of, of angels um, that are sort of moving our passage along. Um, and we looked at the first of these angels' messages last week, but just for continuity's sake, I'll start in verse 6. And I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. 
And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Thus far, the Word of God, let's ask Him to uh, increase its hearing in our hearts. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do worship and praise You. And we are in awe of Your sovereign power, especially as it's displayed in these verses before us. As we see uh, Your righteous wrath, fall upon sinful humanity, a sinful humanity that rejects you and so often rejects your people. Lord God, help us to endure, to not be uh, led astray by the message of this world, to not compromise with the sinful culture around us that seeks to serve the beast. But help us be faithful even if it means uh, shedding our blood, even if it means uh, giving our lives in service of your gospel. 
Help us to be witnesses to those who hate and seek to destroy us. Help us to uh, endure. Uh, give us understanding of this vision that we see uh, here and your revelation to John. Help us not just to seek to understand it um, mentally or academically, uh, like we're trying to put together a puzzle, but help us to uh, apply it to our lives, that our wills would be changed knowing of the coming of your judgments and that we would uh, serve in light of that awesome knowledge. Teach us now by your powerful Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Alright, so last week we spent some time talking about um, the first of these uh, angels, uh, this angel flying directly overhead, and we talked uh, a good deal about this eternal gospel that that angel proclaimed, um, whether it was a real gospel offer or not, and we sort of sided on this was a real offer of the gospel, but with um, sort of the ironic consequences for those who would not listen, that they could either fear God reverentially, um, devotionally, or they would fear God with that um, fear of God's coming wrath and judgment. So I want to start, um, as we look at these other angels' messages, uh, just briefly thinking about the second angel. Uh, so in verse 8, Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Why does the second angel, of all the sort of things we've seen thus far, why focus on sexual immorality? Okay, so if we think of this in terms of of, uh, of the Roman Empire, that it was sexual immorality, that sort of debauchery that brought this empire down um, uh, internally, as Andy said. Uh, I always think of back in, you know, I took Latin in high school, and uh, I always remember um, we had to memorize all the Roman emperors and you know different things about them, and it was really fun to <laughs> sort of <laughs> yeah, that's the guy who did this, this, and this. You know, it's like in class you got to say all these horrible things that these emperors did. We thought that was hysterical. Yeah, Victor. The Old Testament, uh, Jerusalem is always in the kingdom of the fallen after the yeah, and, and particularly um, to think of sexual immorality not just being um, uh, sexual acts themselves, but as this sort of um, uh, symbolic picture of, of, as Victor says, Jerusalem's relationship to God, how they are continually compared to a, a harlot that has has turned away from God, um, that's prostituted itself in its service of other gods. And to think of in those terms, I mean, that's with these pictures of these beasts we've seen, that's the picture of them. They are turning people away from God to worshiping the, the dragon. Um, they've prostituted themselves spiritually and not just uh, physically. Yes, same. 
Yeah, uh, again, that, uh, Hosea being a great uh, picture of of of. Uh, of Israel, you know, you know, prostituting itself, being sexually unfaithful, or using sexual unfaithfulness to describe their lack of keeping faith with God. They're breaking the covenant. And so uh, Hosea going through the symbolic prophetic action of marrying a prostitute to symbolize Israel's relationship uh, with Yahweh. Oh, I saw another hand over here. Yeah, Jonathan. Go back to Rome. It's hard for us to realize just how deeply woven sexual immorality was into every aspect of the culture. But just listen to Radio Last Week. Uh, on your table, I can hardly handle what you know, you're not involved with two young women. In every single aspect of their life, you know, just accepted this. Yeah, and, and again, to sort of think of both the, the physical sexual immorality that's characterized, um, that epitomize, epitomizes this, this Babylon. And it, you know, later in the book, Babylon is going to be described as the, the great whore. Um, so it's, it's both the, the physical debauchery they see going on in their culture at the time, how it's just such, um, as Jonathan says, just so ingrained in in Roman culture, but that the the spiritual side of that immorality as well. Or this side of the room, y'all are you're losing to you know, not that I'm keeping track. They're getting all the answers, you're not. Um but here we have this um this picture of of drinking the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And I love the pairing um, of verse 8 with verse 10. Uh, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. And to think of this drinking as not, you know, drinking from two cups, but one. If you're drinking of the, the wine of the passion of Babylon the Great, then you're drinking the cup of God's wrath. I mean, that's kind of the picture we're getting with this, this pairing that, you know, following the beast, imbibing, uh, imbibing the drink offered by the whore Babylon is, is, is bringing the cup of God's wrath upon you. Um, and just to sort of this picture, um, Victor said this was a picture um, from the Old Testament. It's actually, um, there's a great passage in Jeremiah um, so that, that puts Babylon in the drinking of, of God, or drinking the cup of her wine and making the nations mad. So this is Jeremiah 51, starting in verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Um, again, this picture of Babylon being, uh, you know, drinking the cup of Babylon is the instrument of God's wrath being poured forth. Okay, anything else on second angel's message? That was Jeremiah 51 verses 6 and 7. You're welcome.
so the third angel. So here the third angel comes in verse 9 uh, with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So two weeks ago we saw that you couldn't buy or sell unless you had the mark of the beast. And now we're seeing the true cost of having the beast mark. So what's the true cost? All right, so you know, the cost of not having the beast mark is not being able to buy or sell. What's the true cost of bearing that mark? Yeah, that doesn't sound good, does it? Here's, see, here's my wrath as a beverage again. Um, you know, it's a great drink idea, wrath cola. Coming to stores near you. Um, yeah, uh, drinking the wrath of God's, the cup of God's anger. And it even goes further in its description of what that entails. So, okay, you know, you know, <laughs> God's wrath, a little slap on the wrist. Yeah, Mike. By the imagery of um, why drinking? Well, one, just because wrath is often you know described uh, in, in this kind of liquid state that it's something poured out. Um, there's a lot clearer imagery. So drinking can have you know, as Mike says, drinking can have sort of multiple symbolic imagery. So why particularly negative here? And I think some of that's coming from the imagery in verses 17 to 20. Um, even though you know, drinking a cup can, can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, being in a wine press is always bad. <laughs> Universally in the Old Testament. Uh, so, so if we think of that image, um, the wine press is always shown in, in the Old Testament. Being in God's wine press is always a sign of judgment. Um, so I think uh, to sort of think of the drinking of the cup, we're going to, you know, it's a little, maybe it's a little temporally for us backwards. They're drinking and we see the harvest later on. Um, but I would say connect those two. So we see how that, that wine is, is produced. It's produced through God's acts of judgment. Um, so I, I, that's why I would say um, uh, the origins here lie in the origins of that kind of Old Testament use of imagery uh, of God's wine press. Okay, so uh, back to so James uh, said part of um, having the beast mark is is drinking the cup of God's anger. Um, what else does that entail? It's interesting. My translation says, mixed in full strength and the cup of his anger. Yeah. There's no mercy, there's no more grace. It's not tempered with anything else. Yeah, that's a, that's, I'm glad you brought out that specific language. That it's, it's, um, it's pure 
It's, you know, if we sort of think of it as wrath, it's pure wrath. This is not diluted wrath. Um, it's not wrath, you know, mixed with something else to, you know, make it less bitter or to make it more palatable. Uh, it's the full strength, um, untempered. Yeah, that's a great, uh, uh, a great um, thing to point out about how this wrath is, is being poured out. What else? So, you know... You, you can see back, um, back in church, chapter 13, you know, all right, I get a little mark so I can do business in the marketplace. You know, I do a little sacrifice to the Roman emperor so I can participate in my trade guild. Um, no big deal. Here... <laughs> It's a big deal. It's not just this little, yeah, so I've got the beast mark. Doesn't mean anything. I can go on my business. Um, here we're seeing that kind of compromise uh, with the beast, um, that kind of compromise for the sake of economic gain. And the sort of cost benefit analysis is, is very costly. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, eternal torment is what um, what's being depicted, and um, we, uh, I didn't sort of prepare to go into this today, but um, because it comes up later in the book, you know, there's debates on you know what is the eternal state presented by Revelation. Is some people say it's it's some sort of annihilationism. Other people say it's a, a view of eternal torment. Here we see one of those passages that falls on. We're given a picture of torment forever. Um, you know, it's, it, and it's hard to get away from that kind of language in the text. I mean, um, if you're making the annihilation case, this would be a passage you'd have to deal with seriously. Yeah. That would be torment. <laughs> Having fallen from a significant height, it, it yeah. <laughs> I hit a. but it's never That's torment. I hit a branch about halfway down. And I was like, "Oh, good. That's going to slow me down." No, the branch <laughs> kept going, and then the ground was actually a relief. <laughs> but yeah, that sensation of falling—that's a good way to think about it. Victor. We have no king, but. We have no king but Caesar. Yeah, we have no king but Caesar. Um, and again, to sort of think about, um, even though it can come, again, we sort of talked about that second beast, the deceptive, uh, the emphasis was on the deceptive nature. You know, oh, it's, it's no big deal. You know, this is not a problem. Don't make mountains out of molehills. And, you know, um, the, these visions have sort of shown the true genealogy of power here. You know, who you're really signing on when you sign on with, when you make this choice, you know, when you get that stamp. Um, you're declaring your allegiance to your king really is. Goes up forever and ever, so that is a lasting torment. And they have no rest. 
Yeah, and that's a great um, uh, picture of of torment without rest. And this goes back to the to the you know wine the the wine of God's wrath being full strength here. It's not tempered by by any kind uh, of of rest. And we sort of think of um, you know the common grace that in this life befalls all all people. Um, you know that that God's blessings, um, you know, for the sake of God's um, people, the earth isn't completely destroyed now. Um, you know, God's wrath is tempered right now by His mercy for His people, but we're you know we're getting to this kind of dividing point where that restraint is no longer going to be there. So there is going to be no rest. There is going to be no peace. There is no more of that common grace. It's uh, this eternal wrath. Yeah. Alicia. Um, yeah, it, it's also That's in other people's presence. Yeah, and to sort of think, um, you know, I, I I remember when I was a new Christian, sort of hearing, well, what's hell? You know, that kind of discussion, and you know, you got this one. Well, it's you know, being outside God's presence. And then later on, I learned, no, that's not right. <laughs> um, it's being in God's presence, um, but as Kathy said, in God's presence with no grace, no rest, no peace. Um, uh, but I'm glad Alicia brought up this, this um, uh, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, who keep, uh, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Um, why the message of these three angels? Why... What about this message encourages us to endure? Yeah, Bill. Just the contrast that you were making between uh, the uh, you know the situation before and then how bad this really is. You know, we can want to have some food and things, so we'll take the mark of the beast. But boy, that's a once you read this, you say, "Wow, what a bad decision that one was." Yeah, the kind of true cost. Um, and in the midst of something, uh, or in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty, you could see how easy it would be to, to, to be tempted, um, you know, to get food, not just for yourself, but for your family, or to, to make a living. Um, you can see in the, the midst of it, but, you know, once you see the true cost, I need to endure. Just one other thing it reminds me of Romans fourteen seventeen. The kingdom of God is uh, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And if we're really in the kingdom of God, then we should look for this rest and need this second, not the first. Yeah, and to to seek that kingdom, 
uh, you know, before all earthly comforts. I think that's a great um, passage to sort of think about that and sort of think again, um, as, as Victor sort of said. Yeah, and to, uh, you know, what king are you really going to serve here? Who, who's going to be uh, your master? Who are you going to give your allegiance to? Yeah, Mike. And to see, and we've seen over and over again in this book, this sort of emphasis on the rule of the beast is short. You know? Or this time of, of, of tribulation is brief. Um, it, it's, and, you know, it's given us this sort of comparative perspective. You know? This, and to think of Paul saying, you know, this life is, you know, little affliction. And then you think of that other passage where he repeats, you know, well, you know, I've been stoned, <laughs> beaten, this, that. You know, on the one hand, we can sort of say, oh, it's it, the affliction's real. <laughs> you know, the bodily suffering is, is is severe. But to sort of think of it in this reimagined perspective that John wants to put us in, um, you know, those those temporary things seem. Um, you know, frail or, you know, fleeting in terms of this kind of eternal torment that's being depicted for us um, in, in those who follow and are marked by the beast. So, again, to sort of think of it, um, you know, so much of this book wants us to, to engage our imagination to think of the world differently than we might see it in our everyday experience, to sort of put ourselves in this otherworldly perspective to help us persevere in, in the faith in the here and now. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, and that's and if we sort of think of that peace, peace, and there is no peace, that's the message of the oh, all you gotta do get this little stamp, there'll be peace. <laughs> you won't have to worry about a thing. <laughs> but it's not, uh, it's not peace. It's not the rest, as Kathy said earlier. You know, there ultimately is no peace in that choice. All right, well, I want to spend um, the last little bit uh, of time thinking about um, this harvest that's described in 14 to 20. Um, so we have uh, 
Well, let me just read, read it real quick, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and then seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So why two sickles, two reapings? Let's start with that one. Why two? I understand one harvesting. Um, why, why do we need uh, four people to do this? <laughs> Wait, three angels and the son of man. Um, why repeat it? Why twice? Or why, why two reapings? What do you think? Yeah, Mike. Is the first reaping a good reaping? Okay, uh, let's, let's go with that for what, what would indicate the first reaping would be a good reaping? Um, as, so that would be verses 14 through 16. So we've got lots of biblical language, as Mike's pointing out, um, lots of New Testament language about reaping. Um, and Mike brought out two passages. One, um, you know, Jesus telling his disciples, look, the fields are ripe for harvest, but right before he sends them out to go out. Um, and then other passages um, where, where Jesus sort of makes this distinction between the wheat and the tares. It, you know, thinking of Matthew, the parable of the weeds. You know, an enemy comes and sows a weed and the servants come, what should we do? And Master's like, no, just let them grow up together. And then at the end, you know, the wheat will be gathered, the tares will be gathered, one will be you know, brought to the storehouse, the other is going to be burned. Um, so we've got lots of New Testament language using that kind of reaping analogy. Yeah, Chris? In, in the passage itself, uh, it, it speaks of you know, one like a son of man with a crown of gold, Directs the first harvest, and while the second, another angel came out, and uh, still another who had a charge of fire. So there seems to be a contrast in terms of maybe the purpose based on those who are giving the direction for the harvest. 
Yeah, and uh, a great passage that sort of sort of talks about uh, you know or emphasizes maybe the distinct the distinct part of the Son of Man's uh, being the participant or the reaper in this first one. Um, again, this is from Matthew um, chapter twenty-four. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end to the other. So to sort of think of the coming of the Son of Man, at least in uh, Matthew's Gospel, emphasizes the bringing of, of redemption for his people and judgment um, for those uh, else. So you have this sort of... Um, picture of Christ's coming bringing both uh, this sort of gathering of his people and then the, the gathering together for destruction of uh, the non-elect. I saw another hand somewhere. But... Jonathan, you had yours? Yeah, that's the same thing I was going to say, the difference between the the rest of the passage is almost verbatim. It's only giving the yeah, who's who's the one? You know, uh, if as we look to sort of think, and again, this is not to get into the sort of esoteric uh, debate about you know is this you know one act of judgment being described twice, but to sort of think of how it's being presented differently um, in this passage, and the difference being that the one bearing the sickle in the first harvest is the Son of Man, while this. Uh, angel, uh, it's another angel in the, the second harvesting that's bearing the sickle. So to sort of, as, as Jonathan says, the passages are really almost the same except for these sort of few key differences. Um, and that's one of the, the crucial ones. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, so it, the sort of gathering of, of his own. And it's not just, um, as I was um, looking into this sort of uh, harvesting um, imagery in the Old Testament, because um, we've thrown out a lot of New Testament, it's, it's in the Old Testament as well. And um, as Andy points out, you know, it's... You know, it's the gathering of people together um, in a positive sense. Um, let's see, where, where did I, I thought I had it written down somewhere. Um, so this is one from Isaiah, Isaiah 27, 12. In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. So that sort of restoration gleaning there spoken of. Uh, Hosea, for you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. So again, with Andy's sort of gathering of the sheaves, um, there's that that positive sense of, of reaping in the Old Testament, as well as the kind of reaping unto the destruction. All right. So let's. We, we, so I, I think it's two different reapings. I, I think there's a lot of good. Um, Y'all have pointed out a lot of good. Uh, um, reasonings for. So the debate is over the first reaping, whether that's a good one or not. It's pretty much universally acknowledged that the second reaping is bad. <laughs> this does not look good, does it? 
And again, to sort of think of consistency of biblical language, uh, being in a uh, the image of treading a wine press without exception is a metaphor of judgment in the Old Testament. And it's also used again in this book of Christ judging the evil nations. Is again going to be described as treading in a wine press. And one, just one Old Testament example of this is Joel 3, uh, 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So what do we make of this uh, imagery? With Because that's the other thing, or uh, another difference, is we've got sort of a more vivid description of the second reaping with the whole uh, outside the city, uh, blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle, 1600 stadia. What, uh, what's going on? What do you think? What what what's your response to that kind of imagery? Terrifying. Terrifying. Right. Let's you know, and let's sort of so blood. How high is a horse's bridle? <laughs> um, I don't know that anybody's ever done a volume. Um, uh, 1600 stadia is roughly, oh, I wrote it down, is roughly 184 miles. So I uh, always think of, I guess, the, I was thinking um, with some, a lot of the floods we've been having this spring. Um, I once read this book about the Great Mississippi Flood of 1926. 26 or 27, I always get confused. Um, where, uh, in, I read it when I was living in Mississippi. Uh, at the time, and it talked about water roughly six feet deep, all the way from the Mississippi River to Yazoo City, which, if you look on a map, um, is a good 75 miles away. <laughs> that is a lot of water. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, thinking, trying to vision the sort of volume of this, that was my kind of man. <laughs> I think of the, that particular flood and how far the flood went and how deep the water was, um, you know, is the only thing I can sort of, sort of closely picture um, this kind of, of blood flow. Yeah, Victor. Uh, yeah, it could be viewed um, spattering and not just that. So it's sort of like, yeah, sort of um, think of science, forensic scientists, you know, smack how far does the blood, you know, the blood goes up this high so, you know, they can look and... <laughs> Josephus's description of what the Romans do to the Jews is, is horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mir. Mm-hmm. 
um, again, I, and I've been thinking about that, and um, I guess the, the, what I've been sort of thinking about this final section, because I think the final section is sort of set a little bit apart from those the first section, although I, I can make an argument both ways. So if we make an argument that it's all supposed to be connected, if you count the Son of Man, uh, there are seven angels involved. So you got three angels, the Son of Man, and three more angels. So, if, so taking from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, you've got seven heavenly figures. Um, so that would be you know, one argument made to sort of connect it. Um, I, sort of thinking of it where this falls large in the book as a whole, and to go back to chapter 12 and sort of think of, you know, the whole purpose of this section is to sort of give us that step back view, that really broad view. And I think, you know, that started with this really broad view of Christ coming, and now it's ending with this sort of broad picture of, again, something we see in the New Testament, that sort of broad description of, of the judgment, of sort of, uh, you know, the, the harvest imagery, you know, the gathering and judging of, of the, um, the gathering of the saints and, you know, well done, good and faithful servant and, you know, depart from me. Uh, so I, I think it's ending with that kind of broad picture. Um, so I would make the case not to sort of see it, this chapter chronologically, but to see it more episodically and sort of, again, sort of episodically with various degrees of zoom-in lens. And so this is the, it's ending like the section began with that kind of broad view. Putting Christ, you know, again, we, we, we can focus in on Christ's uh, specific life and ministry and all of those details. But when you zoom way out, you get a very different picture of the meaning of Christ's reign. Uh, yeah, George. I find this part Has has reached its right point. Um, it's the the harvest has reached its time, and some people sort of um, uh, you know I don't know how much I buy this or not, but I'll just throw it out there. Um, some people looking at the sun, the fact that it's another angel comes and tells the son of man, you know, now it's the time to go reap. You know, sort of use that the sun doesn't know the time or the hour, so it's like the the angels bring, okay, now it's time to start, kind of, I don't know if I buy that or not, but um, but to sort of think of, as George is saying, that the time is right. This is, this, what we're seeing in the last verses is sort of this vision of the end of, of time when the evil has reached its ripe point and the harvest is unleashed upon humanity. Y'all all looked overwhelmed. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but 
um, and and Mary's pointing out, um, you know, one of the difficult things we've had or difficulties in the book is it's it's sometimes hard to make uh, sense of because it's you know again it's sort of following a circular. Um, pattern we've, we've talked about and also this kind of change of focus you know zooming in and out um, and you, you think of kind of, let's see I, I subject Dana to all these sort of independent films and she's like what was that um, <laughs> and uh, I, I was thinking of um, we watched this movie uh, which I don't know that I'd recommend it but it was pretty funny uh, called Exit Through the Gift Shop which was this guy's, so this guy went out to set out to make a documentary about street artists, and one of the street artists turned around and made a documentary about the guy making a documentary about the street artists. Um, but the guy making, the original guy, was just completely nuts. <laughs> and like when he debuted his film to uh, the street artist Banksy, uh, this British street artist Banksy, um, when he debuted the film, Banksy was like, what was that? Because <laughs> it was all kind of just random things, you know, streamed together that made no sense. So then he turned around and was like, all right, we got to make something out of this. That's <laughs> but it's that kind of, um, to sort of think of it, again, to sort of think of it in, in terms of visually, because this is a very visual book, to, to sort of see it and that kind of, he's giving us moments where he zooms in on sort of particular aspects and then he zooms out and gives us that, wow, you know, from a distance, that scene looks very different from way back here and then he zooms back in. And so, so that sort of change of focus. You also, uh, you have, I agree with what you said, I think you also have uh, different perspectives. Sometimes you have a heavenly perspective and sometimes you have a earthly And um, we've hit our time, but I think that's a great point to end on. And sort of think about you know what we've considered in the first 14 chapters as a whole. This emphasis on this side, we're going to experience life. You know, we're going to in, in certain ways we're going to experience persecution. We're going to experience tribulation, and you know it's this heavenly message to encourage us how we live in this life and you know he's giving us descriptions of both sides um, and putting them together you know and and with our particular passage you know on this side it might the the mark of the beast might look tempting cuz you know Man, not being able to buy or sell, <laughs> that, that can cause problems. <laughs> that could be difficult. 
but to see what that really means to, to you know so in one sense from early you could see where it'd be tempting so he sort of takes you to the other side well this is what that really means and this is what really happens to the people who have that mark um, so yeah this change of perspective you know <laughs> it leads, you know, this this cup you're drinking here that you think is so is so tasty, you know, is is the cup of God's unmixed wrath, um, you know, and uh, yeah, so sort of this varying of perspectives. Yeah, Andy. Yeah. And uh, and other kingdoms as well. Um, that kind of same. Um, but in, this, in that particular case, it was clearly, clearly, and of God's judgment. It reminds me of before the flood, too, when the sons of God and the daughters of men became very attractive, even as wives, and then, you know, the commentary is that the, every inclination of their heart was always. Yeah, this complete surrendering to one's own desires, um, which again, why sexual immorality, I think, is such a great picture of that wider. Uh, I mean, if you know, if you're doing the one, <laughs> you know, it's you know, the one symbolizes you know a much broader heart problem. It's not just the sinfulness of the one action. It's the inclination of the heart that that one action depicts. All right. Well, um, just to, again, emphasize, we are going to come back to the book of Revelation, God willing, um, uh, next year. Um, but to, to think about, as I sort of close this morning, to sort of think about how... I mean, I used to read the, the book, um, I think... I think I was saying last week to someone, uh, I used to read the book with this kind of disjunctive view. Uh, you know, you've got this sort of episode and this sort of, you know. But uh, what's really struck me over the past 20 weeks, and yes, it has been that long, um, is um, the, the continuity of the, the message to the church, you know, hearing it. You know, even though the episodes are changing, the imagery can be bizarre, the emphasis is always the same. And, and again, we saw it in, in verse 12 here. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Um, you know, we can struggle with the specifics of particular imagery. You know, what is this supposed to connote? But the overwhelming message over and over again is Christians endure. Uh, Christians persevere in this faith you've been given. Don't let your lampstand be snuffed out, but, but keep that faithful witness in a world that seeks to get you to compromise, that seeks to get you to, to, um, to bargain away um, that which Christ has won for you. Um, all right, let me close us in prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I, I thank you personally for um, opening this book uh, for me this semester, and it's been my prayer throughout that uh, others would be aided in their Christian walk as well. 
Um, as I said at the beginning of the term, it's a book um, that I've avoided so much of my Christian life uh, because of, of um, fear of it or because of experience with uh, such conflicting messages coming from it. Um, but what a uh, detriment to myself uh, that I've neglected uh, this presentation, this overwhelming presentation of the deity of Christ, what Christ's rule means, and what it means for me to be a, a servant of that kingdom. Um, it's given me new perspective on what faithfulness means. And to see um, the competition between your kingdom and the kingdom of Satan. And all the ways that this world tries to get me to compromise uh, the, my steadfast belief in Christ with uh, these things which you show uh, will not last. That you show the, uh, the true cost of these earthly pleasures, of these compromises that seem so uh, benign or uh, seem so small, but you show them in their eternal significance. Lord God, help us to carry forward to a world that hates your gospel, that very gospel it hates, and be willing to pay the cost um, for bearing that message because we know the eternal worth of that gospel and the life and grace and hope it brings. Help us to be that people, a people that's faithful and a people that uh, is strong in its witness and a people that endure to the very end. For we ask it in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.